This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, September 23, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In West Virginia v. EPA, the Supreme Court issued its most significant administrative and regulatory decision of the term, with far-reaching implications for how agencies are allowed to view their mandates. What does that mean going forward? At the Cato Institute's Constitution Day event, Jonathan Adler gave his mixed assessment of the decision. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always uh, fun to be back at Cato and uh, to be here for Constitution Day, to see Roger, who I used to uh, debate constitutional law questions with when I was a mere college student in the in the basement of the old Waterston House uh, in my first summer uh, being involved with Cato. Uh, and it's a pleasure to talk about West Virginia versus EPA, um, a fun case, a case that concerns the Clean Air Act, which um, is an act that uh, some of us have learned to, to know and love uh, very deeply, or at least have a love-hate relationship with. Um, and just to kind of uh, give the quick overview or the quick summary of my views about West Virginia versus EPA, I have very mixed feelings about this case. I think as a pure matter of law, the court reached what was clearly the correct result in that the EPA was asserting authority that Congress had never delegated to it. On the other hand, uh, the sort of power that EPA wanted to exercise is as far as climate policies go, certainly better than a lot of the alternatives that EPA has been delegated the authority, or at least has arguably been delegated the authority to do. The court reached the correct result in the case, but it's not clear the court should have heard the case, not because it lacked jurisdiction, as some claimed. It certainly had jurisdiction. And when you read the opinions, it's clear that uh, the jurisdictional arguments were interesting, but never had much substance to them. But it's not really clear that the case should have been before the court anyway, and I'll say a little bit about that. And I also have mixed feelings because while I like the results, the opinions are underwhelming, Um, all of them. None of the opinions in the case really take seriously the text and structure and operation of the Clean Air Act. Uh, The majority utterly fails to do the heavy lifting that certainly was done in some of the merits briefs and in some of the the amicus briefs to really look at how the Clean Air Act operates, how Section 111 operates. Uh, And as a consequence, the dissent gets to pretend as if you can resolve the whole case by focusing on a single word. which was an interesting posture to see Justice Kagan take uh, in an opinion, given some of the things she has said about statutory interpretation in the past. And the decision also missed an opportunity to bring clarity and principle to what is a very important underlying question, which is how do we understand the delegation of power to agencies? How do we understand and determine what power it is that agencies have been delegated Uh, by Congress. And uh, this is an area of law where the court has given hints and made gestures, uh, but has not really given the the degree of clarity that it it could have. And this case presented, in my view at least, uh, a perfect opportunity to do so, and that's an opportunity missed. So let me give a little bit of background and and then flesh out uh, some of these points. And of course, the paper uh, uh, fleshes out some of these in more detail. For those of you that have not spent years reading and rereading and trying to make sense of the Clean Air Act, let me give you a little sense of what this this law 
uh, or this case was about. So at a broad level of generality, it was about the scope of EPA's power to regulate uh, greenhouse gas emissions from power plants, in particular, what EPA could do when setting standards of performance that power plants must meet in terms of their greenhouse gas emissions. Um, there was a debate over whether greenhouse gas emissions should be considered pollutants under the Clean Air Act. That question was resolved uh, definitively, I would argue erroneously, but nonetheless definitively in Massachusetts versus EPA. And since then, the court has recognized that, it, um, that while greenhouse gases are pollutants for purposes of the Clean Air Act, or assuming they are pollutants for the purposes of the Clean Air Act, that does not give the EPA the authority to alter the Clean Air Act or its operation so as to make it operate better for greenhouse gases, because greenhouse gases are not traditional pollutants. They're not emitted in the volumes that traditional pollutants are. The, the, the effects they have are not the effects that traditional pollutants have. And the way, you, if you one were to try to reduce them, the way one would try and reduce greenhouse gas emissions is not the way one would try and reduce particulates, nitrogen oxides, hydrocarbons, and so on, particularly if one wanted to do it in a remotely efficient way. Uh, but the Supreme Court has made, had made clear long before this case that just because there are better ways to deal with greenhouse gases does not give EPA the authority to massage, to stretch, to rewrite, to repurpose provisions of the Clean Air Act that aren't a good fit. In the Utility Air Regulatory Group versus EPA case, the Supreme Court made that very clear in language that you can go back and, and, and pick out passages from UARG and they tell you exactly what the court was gonna do here. Um, so section 111 of the Clean Air Act uh, is a provision that allows the EPA to set standards of performance for specific categories of sources of air pollutants. And what the EPA does is it's supposed to determine what is the best system of emission reduction that has been adequately demonstrated considering cost and a few other factors. And then that is the standard that categories of that source are required uh, to meet in terms of their emission reductions. And when it comes to greenhouse gases out of power, out of coal-fired power plants, if you do the thing that traditionally you do under Section 111, that you traditionally do under other provisions of the Act that anticipate technology-based or method-based uh, uh, standards, you do heat rate improvements or something like that, and you don't get much in the way of reductions. Uh, and that's just the way it is because the other things you might wanna do, like carbon capture, well, it's hard to argue that at least at this point that's been adequately demonstrated considering cost, which is one of the other requirements of Section 111. And that was certainly true when the Obama administration was drafting the Clean Power Plan. So the Obama administration said, well, this language, best system of emission reduction, read in context, understood as it has always been understood since that language was written in the Act, um, the way the Act's operated based on what was written in 1970, 1977, and 1990, that anticipates things you do at the facility, within the facility, within the control of the firm that owns a particular facility. But that language, best system of emission reduction, certainly seems broader, certainly when taken in isolation. And if we're talking about power plants, we're really talking about facilities that are part of a broader system, the electric grid. And if we're we're con 
concerned about that? Well, then maybe we reduce emissions by saying, you coal plants operate less, gas plants operate more, renewables operate more, and that sort of trading is a much more efficient way of reducing emissions. That's certainly true. And the Obama administration thought you could take this phrase, in some respects, read it out of context, and say, well, we're still, this is a system of emission reduction. It's just not the type of system of emission reduction that had ever been anticipated by those writing, voting on, or implementing the act ever before. And so that was the basis of the Clean Power Plan. Uh, now, you may wonder, again, if you haven't followed this case, well, why are we talking about an Obama administration regulation? We're talking about a decision that the Supreme Court handed down in 2022. Well, the Clean Power Plan was stayed by the Supreme Court, and that's a whole fun story, which if I had time, I'd get into it, but, but uh, the Supreme Court stays the Clean Power Plan. The, Obama, the Trump administration comes in and repeals the Clean Power Plan, and it does so on the basis of saying the Obama administration misread the statute. We think the language of the statute is much narrower, much more constraining, and so that both means the Clean Power Plan is illegal, and an alternative that was referred to as the ACE rule is the only rule that is consistent with the statute. Like anything the EPA does of any significance, that was challenged in court just as the Clean Power Plan had been. Uh, the DC Circuit uh, invalidates um, the Trump administration rule. I'll just note, and as someone who clerked on the DC Circuit, this was curious. A decision of this magnitude on a regulation of this importance was issued the day before inauguration. Um, unusual. Uh, the DC Circuit has tons of cases uh, in that, that, that it's dealing with in transition years and knows full well that as soon as the transition occurs, a new agency, uh, the new agency heads in the Justice Department may have opinions about which cases it once stayed, which cases it once remanded to the agencies, and understands that you know, adding a decision that may bind the agency's hands in one way or the other is something that might not be necessary. It was certainly curious that an opinion like this would come out on January 19th. Had it not come out, we would never, on that day, had it been held for a day, for two days, we probably never would have had this case. Um, we had the decision come out, peti petitions are filed, something else about why we should never have had this case, the Justice Department opposes certiorari, we would, we, that's not a surprise. The Justice Department raises no jurisdictional concerns in its brief. It has a brief mention that, well, this might be an advisory opinion because we might decide to do something different because the Clean Power Plan's outdated, but never in the Solicitor General's opposition to cert does the Solicitor General suggest what is the obvious way to handle that problem, which is to, which is to ask the Supreme Court to grant vacate and remand, which is, again, a normal thing for the SG's office to do in this situation. There's an old regulation, it's out of date. The regulation that was just struck down by the DC Circuit, we don't want to defend because it's the other team's regulation, it's not ours. We don't want to defend that. We'd like a clean slate so we can come up with a regulation under the act that is consistent with our policy and that makes sense given what's changed in the industry since then. That would be the routine thing to do, not mentioned in the, in the cert stage brief. It is finally raised in the merits brief, but it's too late. You're not gonna convince the court to do something like that in the merits briefing. If you wanna convince the court to 
send the case, send the issue back as a mulligan, you'd have to do that at the cert stage. And again, curious why that was not done. Uh, so we get the case. Uh, when the case is granted, there was no question what the outcome was going to be. There was no question. The court did not take certiorari to do anything other than overturn the extremely broad interpretation of the Clean Air Act that the DC Circuit had issued. The only question was how the EPA would lose. There was some thought that maybe we would get a very narrow textual opinion, the sort of opinion that Clean Air Act geeks like me love, where really, you know, rolling up your sleeves and getting into the bowels of the act. Um, but again, odd case to take if that's really what you wanted to do. And let's face it, I don't think Supreme Court justices enjoy digging into the Clean Air Act as much as, say, D.C. Circuit judges. Another possibility a lot of people talked about was a broad non-delegation ruling, but that really wasn't in the briefs either. Um, it was in the background. It was a looming presence, because if you're talking about what how broad is the power that an agency has been delegated? Certainly, the prospects of a non-delegation doctrine looms large in that, in, in that uh, context. But the briefs themselves were really just saying, look, conclude that EPA was not delegated this power. Major questions was on the court's mind. We knew it was on the court's mind because we had just seen uh, the decision in the eviction moratorium case that made reference to the major questions idea. We knew the OSHA case. Uh, was coming. The question was really how the court was going to approach the major questions doctrine. Was it going to say the major questions doctrine? It's kind of like a canon of construction, a tiebreaker, something that helps us resolve an ambiguity in a statute, or is it going to be something we throw on the table right up front and say this is going to uh, uh, kind of predetermine our, our statutory interpretation? Um, and the latter is what the court did, right? Chief Justice right up front in his opinion says, you know, there's a way we normally interpret statutes in this sort of context. We read things in context, yada, yada. But there are extraordinary cases where we do something different. Cases of economic, great economic and political significance. And this is one, and in effect loads the dice for the inquiry uh, to follow, and in effect excuses him from having to actually deal with the details of the Clean Air Act. It's an easy way to deal with the case. It's a way for the court to avoid perhaps saying something about the details of the Clean Air Act that might be wrong and that might you know, hamstring the EPA or the DC Circuit going forward. But as a doctrine to be administered by lower courts, it's something of a squishy mess. Because the question now for lower courts is, well, is this the sort of case where we do the normal thing of looking at the statute and figuring out what power was delegated to the agency, recognizing perhaps the longstanding principle, the principle that was a staple of statutory interpretation cases and, and treatises in the late 19th century, that you should be suspicious of, of claims of implied delegation, that claims of broader delegation of authority require greater evidence than narrower claims of delegation. But instead, do this threshold inquiry, is this a major question? Are there enough zeros after the dollar sign? Um, is it, were there enough segments about this question on CNN? Was the bill that was introduced in some committee ever given serious consideration so we can say Congress thought about addressing this? These are not inquiries that courts are really good at. But those are the sorts of inquiries West Virginia tells lower courts they're supposed to be doing. Um, uh, in, ter in terms of figuring out major questions. I've probably gone on longer than I'm supposed to, so let me just say two really quick points and then stop. 
Um, the good thing about at least the way Chief Justice Roberts justifies his approach is that he's, he does identify the underlying principle, which is an essential one, not a non-delegation doctrine, but what we might call a delegation doctrine, a doctrine that understands that agencies only have power if it has been delegated to them. Something the court has said repeatedly, something that agencies often forget. If they want to exercise power, any power, they have to find that Congress has delegated it to them. If there is no delegation, there is no power. If there's no delegation, there's no deference. If there's no delegation, there's no authority to tell power plants or anybody else what to do. The problem is, is that from that principle, one can actually spell out a, 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 a meaningful way of thinking about the way instruments like legislation delegate power, how we interpret those sorts of instruments, how we think about them in terms of agency principles, not agencies in terms of administrative agencies, but agencies in terms of principal-agent relationships, and recognize the broader the claim of delegation, the greater the showing we should expect. Because we don't expect the drafters of instruments to hide elephants in mouse holes. But that doesn't suggest we should try and distinguish between major and minor questions. It means we should make sure that whatever power is claimed has in fact been delegated and is consistent with the text and structure of the underlying statute. The other thing that I think is, is somewhat good about uh, uh, the opinion, and again, this is my last point for sure, um, is that it recognizes one of the particular problems in this context is, arises from the fact that Congress doesn't like to revisit these statutes. And we have lots of contemporary problems that raise important policy questions that Congress has not spoken to. And we have a trend that is not new, that did not begin with the Obama administration. It goes back at least to the Clinton administration of the executive branch saying, well, if Congress is not gonna give us the power we want, we will figure out if there's something they gave us before which will do the trick. I kind of think about this when I'm it's like when I'm doing you know, some kind of uh, amateur repair work uh, at, at home, and I bring a wrench upstairs, and I realize I need a hammer. But I don't have a hammer, I, I grab the wrench. Well, you know, if you turn the wrench on its side and you angle it just right, you can make it work like a hammer. And that's essentially what agencies have been doing. You know, we've been given wrenches, but we'd rather have a hammer. Let's find a hammer. Let's make this system of emission reduction not be what Congress was actually giving the agency the power to do, but uh, something that'll be more useful given the problem we're trying to solve. Um, let's, pour old, let's pour new wine out of old bottles, because old bottles are all we have. Uh, and the majority opinion is sensitive to that concern. Um, but again, I don't think it, it fully realizes that the way to deal with this is to just think more seriously and in a more principled way about how it is we understand what powers agencies have. And, la and this is particularly disappointing to have come from Chief Justice Roberts because he's pointed this out before in a case called Arlington versus, uh, City of Arlington versus FCC. He identified these principles, albeit in dissent. And in some respects, the biggest problem with Western University EPA was that perhaps the Chief Justice had decided they'd overturned enough cases this past term and they didn't want to overturn this obscure administrative law case in which he dissented before. But had he done so, we might have had a more workable doctrine. Jonathan Adler is professor of law at Case Western Reserve University. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Constitution Day event. 
Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 